The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. I have uh, quite a few friends that attend church here, so uh, it's good seeing your faces. My disclaimer is I'm not a preacher. I'm not a preacher. I'm the son of a preacher, but I'm not a preacher. So let's lower our expectations this morning, and we'll walk away somewhat satisfied, potentially. not a preacher. I'm a Christian school president, and there are some misconceptions when it comes to Christian school presidents, especially when you're asked to speak to large groups of people. It reminds me of this story where a preacher a youth minister and a Christian school president died. They go to heaven and they see Peter there at the pearly gates. And Peter says, guys, you made it. Congratulations. But we have a problem. We're doing some remodeling and we don't have space for you at the moment. And so we've worked a deal out with Satan and you have to spend some time with him. And when we're done, you're welcome in. So they say, okay, so... A day goes by and Satan calls Peter and says, you got to get these guys out of here. Peter's like, why? What's going on? He said, well, the preacher is going around creating all these small groups and praying with everybody. The youth minister has created all these crazy Christian events. And the Christian school president's walking around trying to raise money for air conditioning. <laughs> That's a good one. And, and uh, Jeff Dimmick, you cannot give that one to DeSteiger. That one's, that's my joke. <clears throat> Thank you for letting me be here. Today's the first Advent Sunday, and so the passage that they gave me is 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 through 13. So if you want to turn to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be there. The title they gave me is The Joy of the Lord. So we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to be talking about the joy of the Lord, but before we get to that text, I think we need to provide a little bit of background for the text, a little bit of context. So I'm actually going to start in Acts 17. In verse 1 it says, When Paul came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and improving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. 
Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Paul went to Thessalonica to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was met with great hostility, aggression, persecution. Paul had to leave Thessalonica quickly. Now the simple truth, kind of the obvious truth here is, Paul left, but the Thessalonians had to stay. Like the ones that heard Paul's message and believed Paul's message, they stayed in Thessalonica because that was home. And they experienced great persecution. And we know that many of them lost their lives for what they believed in. So Paul left quickly. He didn't get to say his proper goodbyes, and he probably didn't get to say everything he wanted to say to this group of people. But we know that even though Paul left, Paul didn't escape persecution, right? Paul experienced amazing persecution for Christ. And he's sitting here in the, in the midst of persecution, and all he can think about is the Thessalonians. What is going on? N.T. Wright says that, that probably the Thessalonians started to develop some questions like, is this worth it? Is this Jesus guy worth it? As they, as they watch their friends die. Paul's concerned for the Thessalonians, so he sends Timothy to check on him. And Timothy comes back and he reports to Paul, the Thessalonians are remaining strong in their faith. There are a couple of issues, but for the most part, they are remaining faithful. And that leads us to our Advent passage this morning, 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 through 13. Paul's words. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So I've been asked to talk about joy and hope in relation to this passage. I love research on joy and happiness. I find it pretty interesting. There are 200 studies of 275,000 people that tell us that joy leads to higher levels of success in life. The interesting study, or at least the one that I think was most interesting, is this study done in 1917 of 180 nuns at Notre Dame. They asked these nuns to write down their thoughts in an autobiographical format as journaling. 
And five decades later, researchers came back to those journals and coded the journal entries. They wanted to see which of the nuns were happiest and which were the nuns were least happy. And what they found was, of the happiest nuns at age 85, 95% were still living. And of the least happiest nuns at age 85, only 34% were still living. It is a common fact within psychology, specifically positive psychology, that happiness and joy leads to higher levels of success. Now, I don't say that this morning to give us the secret to success. I don't think that's what this passage is doing. I don't think this passage even cares about that. But I do bring that up because I think we have an issue with the equation of joyfulness. I think often we try and we attempt to find joy in all of the wrong places. In my simple Texas brain, I think of the country song just a few years ago where the chorus goes, money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat. And it can buy me a truck to pull it. And it can buy me a Yeti. And yes, I, I know, money can't buy everything, but it can buy me a boat. All right, it's just a simple way that, that we hear. Here we are trying to find joy in the materialistic world that we live in. We, um, we struggle with the how of joyfulness. And so the question that I asked this morning is how did Paul find the joy of the Lord amidst the suffering of his life? How? Sean Aker recently set out to find the how of happiness. Some of you might have read his book. It's interesting. Within research, we have... Uh, often we use trend data. And so if you saw a plot graph, you would, see, you would hope to see a trend in your research, and then there's going to be outliers, those that in this case are most happy and, and those that are least happy, and we try to find trends. Often we throw out the outliers. Okay? There's ways to do that. But in, in, in happiness research, what has often happened is we tend to look at the lower quadrant, the least happy, and a lot of research is done in that area. In fact, in 1998, they found it was a 17 to 1 negative to positive ratio, meaning that for every one study done on happiness or joy, there were 17 studies done on depression or despair. It was so bad that in 1998, the president of the American Psychological Association said, it's time that we stop looking at what doesn't work, and let's start looking at what works. And so Sean Aker began that search. And what's interesting when you find his, when you look at his findings, that they align so closely with how Paul found joyfulness. I, I think there's a key text here, and it's in verse 10. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul wanted to see the Thessalonians again. Paul desired community. In the world that we live in, it is full of consumption. 
We live in a world full of stuff. And when we live in a world of consumption, it sometimes gets easy to devalue the relationships of people around us. Did you know that this year, with your children, those in elementary all the way through college, our country will spend close to $20 billion marketing to them? To give that in perspective, in 1980, we spent about $100 million to that subgroup. Uh, Generation Z, which is these kids, Generation Z has the purchasing power of $600 billion in our market. Y'all, we live in an amazing world of consumption and self-idolatry. And when you live in a world of self-idolatry and consumption, you forget the power of community. Many scholars will say 1 Thessalonians is a letter of friendship where Paul presents himself not as this exceptional teacher, but as a pastoral friend. In the mid-2000s, when our economy began to tank, researchers wanted to know, why did some companies make it and some companies fail? And what they found with the companies that failed is that the employees in this group, in these organizations, began isolating themselves. They, became, they, they just got these isolation techniques. They, they would work through lunch. They would eat at their desk and work instead of going out with their peers. They would stay late at the office and miss time with their families. They dropped team meetings. They dropped employee programs. It was very isolating. How true is it for us that when hard times come, when trials are faced, when suffering happens, we isolate ourselves from community. We run away, we hide. What's interesting is science tells us that this need for social relationships is actually built into our biological makeup. Which we know that, right? Because the narrative of Genesis, God says, it's not good. For man to be alone. That's why I think in verse 12, Paul says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. There's something else going on in verse 10. Yes, he wants to see them, but he also wants to supply what is lacking in their faith. While Paul is experiencing suffering and persecution, he is thinking, what can he do for the Thessalonians? 2,000 people were studied. And they were, some, some of them were asked to do five acts of kindness a day while others were asked to not do anything. And they found that the ones that were asked to do acts of kindness had higher levels of joyfulness and those that didn't had lower levels of joyfulness. Makes sense right? You you do something nice for somebody and you feel good about it. Makes sense. But as we peel this back a little bit and we dig a little deeper into verse 10, I think there's something else going on here. I think Paul is an expert on hardship. And if you're an expert on hardship, I think you're allowed to talk about how to find joy in the midst of suffering. And here's what's interesting. Every time Paul addresses suffering or hardship or faith issues in Scripture, he never talks about avoidance. 
And as Americans, we love avoidance. In fact, as American parents, I think we have mastered the art of making life easy for our children. We have two generations of parents that are known as helicopter parents, and the new generation of parents is now known as lawnmower parents because they will run over anything in anybody's way to make life easy for their children. We don't like dealing with adversity. So we try to make life easy. And what we do is we don't equip ourselves with the tools necessary to deal with adversity when adversity hits, because it will. What does Paul do? Paul supplies. He supplies a need. You might be familiar with this viral video that has gone around recently of Dr. Angela Duckworth on grit. Uh, the simple definition of grit is perseverance over a long period of time. But did you know that Paul, one of the tools Paul brings to us through Scripture is grit? He doesn't use the word grit, but he would call it a fruit of the Spirit, potentially. Some translations use the word forbearance. Some use the word long-suffering. But the definition of it is patience over a long period of time. He supplies a tool. Or maybe the tool of suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Paul supplies tools. And how does he do it? He does it through a mindset. John Milton has this quote that I like. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. Paul was able to make a heaven of hell. Or in other words, he was able to find joy in the suffering. But how? Through a mindset. My family likes to go to the zoo a lot in Oklahoma City. And I think just last week, potentially, re recently, I saw an animal that I had never seen before in my entire life called an okapi. Anybody seen an okapi? It has a fascinating history. The okapi, uh, well, actually, British traders in the 19th century found ancient Egypt carvings of this mythical animal that was part giraffe and part zebra. They called it the African unicorn. And for, for most of life, this was considered a mythical animal. And there were sightings, but nobody believed it to be real. In fact, in 1901, a guy was given a skull and said, this is the African unicorn, and still nobody believed it. But in 1918, a man captured an African unicorn, now known as the Akapi. And it looks like part giraffe and part zebra, but it's actually its own species. What's interesting to me about this is what was meant to be a myth or thought to be a myth for so long was actually a truth. Similar with our brains, what was thought to be a reality for so long was that we have a fixed mindset. That, that we are either born smart or we're not. That we are either born good at math or we're not. That we are born to write or we're not. But fortunately, we have realized that that is a myth. 
and that we actually have brains that are so powerful that can be shaped and grown in amazing ways. As educators, we call this a growth mindset. I think Paul had a growth mindset. Paul had a mindset of hope in the eternal. And when you have a mindset of hope, you are able to find the joy of the Lord in the darkest days of your life. But the tricky thing about mindsets is we can get confused so easily. As we think back to the beginning of how happiness produces success, we so often get the equation mixed up. And we think success and achievement provides us this joy. C.S. Lewis has something really interesting to say about this. C.S. Lewis in a sermon one time says, you can only get first things first by putting second things second. There are first things in our lives and there are second things in our lives. Second things aren't bad things. They're just secondary. Things like school grades. They're not bad secondary. Things like work promotions. Things like sports achievement. They're not bad things, but they're second things. And when we try to make second things the producers of joy in our lives, we will never experience the kind of joy that Paul had. If you are in the midst of adversity right now, Take Paul's example and lean into your community. Lean into the loving arms of this church. If you are in the midst of adversity right now, take Paul's example and don't look for a way out of your affliction, but find hope in Christ. Paul deeply understood that his joy and hope is found in the saving blood of Jesus Christ. If you are seeking joy in your life right now, reflect and ask yourself, are you searching for joy in the second things of this world or the first things of his kingdom? Let's pray. God, as we end this service today, I pray that we will all find our joy and our hope in you. That we seek our community and our trials rather than isolation in our homes that we spend our energy focused on developing the first things of your kingdom. And most importantly, help us understand that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amen. If you have anything you want this community to pray about or walk alongside you, please come as we stand and sing.